0: Welcome to the third of our professorial lectures for 2017 to 18 and thank you so much for joining us this evening. The series provides a welcome opportunity for us to celebrate and share the expertise of our professors. Each lecture is free and open to the public and that of course includes staff, students and members of the public. I'm really delighted to introduce Claire Cameron, Professor of Social Pedagogy at the IOE. Claire's a long-standing colleague here, having been based at the IOE on and off since the 1990s. Previously a social worker, Claire's also a sociologist by training and conducts research about, with and for looked after children, as well as research on early childhood education and care. She's particularly interested in concepts of care, education, and upbringing. And much of her work takes a cross-national comparative perspective. One such example is the Yippee Project with Sonia Jackson, which was the first comparative study of young people who'd been in state care as children in Europe and their educational trajectories. The study represented a big step forward in terms of identifying how best to improve these young people's generally very poor access to further and higher education. Now as that project is testament to, as well as being cross national, Claire's scholarship and wider leadership in her field is making a real difference for young people. Another example is her work on social pedagogy from 2008 to 11, Claire led a pilot study introducing European-trained social pedagogues into residential care in England. Momentum continued to build, and last year, Claire launched a, a new social pedagogy professional association, the SPPA, for the UK. And I was very pleased to be part of that really inspiring launch event. The SPPA is based in the IOE's Thomas Corum Research Unit, the TCRU, which is a multidisciplinary unit focused on children, young people and family life, and where Claire is also deputy director. Now I've provided just two examples of Claire's contribution to improving the quality of life and the life chances of our young people and children. So now let's hear more from Claire herself. Claire.
1: OK, thank you very much, Becky. First thing I'm going to do is take off this hat. <laughs> Phew. OK. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Um, My research career has um, evolved to be about supporting practitioners who are generally not held in high regard in society. They work in care and education settings with young children and young people who often highly disadvantaged themselves. I'm interested in the relationship between who they are as people and what they do in practice. Much of the work has been cross-national, as Becky said, and I'll be talking about findings from three cross-national studies um, today. And much of the work has been in teams. And I'm indebted to all the teams I've worked in, in TCRU and elsewhere. Um, that work has enriched my thinking and the research. So what I present today is my own, but I am very, very, value, very much value my colleagues. So in 15 minutes, I don't have time to cover all my research, but I hope to draw some coherent lines of thinking. So I have three children. They're grown up. Two of them are here. One of them's late. <laughs> <laughs> the one who is late, Tallulah, a long time ago, we were driving to a music lesson, and we were talking about my work as a social researcher. And Tallulah asked me pointedly, what have you found out exactly? and uh, I hummed and hard a bit. And in this lecture, I shall attempt to bring together some of that finding out, although anyone in the social sciences knows how provisional knowledge is. So, children, young people, and families are facing an ever more unequal UK, but one where the social and public visibility of, visibility of children and childhood has never been greater. There are immense opportunities for young people to participate in the social and political world. And the legitimacy of children's voices in public discourse is now established. But at the same time, you don't have to look very far to see that services for children and families are being hollowed out by austerity measures. The scale of devastation being wreaked on the fabric of care, education and health services is truly shocking. Child poverty is rising again. A third of children are now living in conditions of poverty. The numbers of children in care are rising again, having been dipping for some years. Um, Now up to 70,000 at the last census date. And services who have support children, families, and young people are being deeply damaged. In my own local authority in Cambridgeshire, I asked a councillor to find me um, data on the amount of money that had been spent in 2010 and now. And there's a very clear line that goes down, 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 down. Education spending is about a quarter of what it was in 2010. All of it going down is about 2015. And then you see the amount of money being spent on children in care going up. And why is that? It's because of the other support services are going down. So with demand rising, resources shrinking, and polarisation rather than consensus building as the dominant political mantra, The metaphors of cliff edge, pressure cooker, and launch into the unknown seem very apt for today's generation of children and young people. So that, in this lecture, I'm going to argue that how we as societies, adults, parents, policymakers, practitioners, leaders, academics, choose to respond to children and young people in terms of the values that we hold, the concepts that frame our thinking, and our action, what we actually do, can make a clear difference to the quality of life for children and young people. So, I'm gonna start with um, a biographical approach to to the lecture. Um, I'm going to introduce you to a very formative educational experience in a small progressive boarding school in Scotland, called Colhannity House, which I attended. And I was able to draw on that experience. There's the house up there. I was able to draw on that experience when I began researching social pedagogy as part of a series of studies in TCRU that examined the potential for different continental European approaches to practices to address the very poor quality of life and outcomes for children living in foster care or residential care. What kind of education was on offer at Kilkwanaty? So the relationship between education and social pedagogy as a framework for professional practice is one major theme. A second theme you can see reflected in these book titles is of the children's workforce. The relationship between the characteristics of the workforce, the professional education and uh, the operational context and what they actually do to shape children's lives was a key theme in several studies that I'm gonna draw on today, particularly working with children in care and the Yippee project that Becky mentioned, improving access to further and higher education and care work in Europe. And the third theme I'm going to talk about is the experience of young people who've been in local authority care in terms of their education and how professional practice shapes their experience. And finally, I'm going to introduce some more recent work that holds the promise to shape professional responses to children in care and that's about a multi-dimensional concept of belonging in a social pedagogic, as a social, pedag- social pedagogic response. So, the children and young people I'm thinking about in this lecture are mostly those who don't live with their birth families, largely due to abuse and neglect, family dysfunction and abandonment. My position is that this group of children are children first and should not be defined solely in terms of their adversities as victims, dangerous or vulnerable, but as rich as any other child, in talents and possibilities, and with equal rights to education, a cultural life, health, friendships and love. Children could should be, in children in care should be, in the words of one of our interviewees, getting some possibilities in life. So hence I want to start with education. the right way. What do I mean by education? So Kilwhanity House in the Galloway Hills was modeled on A.S. Neal's Summer Hill School in Suffolk, where lessons were optional and teachers were called by their first names. This was a free school. Our headmaster, John Aitkenhead, said that education was about participation, creativity, and the practical activities of living together. Looking back over 50 years of leading the school, in Kil'Hanity's Jubilee, he said, education is the generation of happiness. He was inspired by Herbert Reid. It's not the pursuit of happiness, it's the involvement in activities and relationships, the creative work that nourishes the human spirit. The word education, he said, is from the Latin word, "educare" to nourish. Real, demanding situations abounded throughout those years of the school. Kids frequently found themselves faced with the planning and building of the school, all the arts and crafts and skills involved are made for real learning situations. The school farm was real. Adults and kids shared all kinds of work on the basis of equality. The weekly meeting was real, dealing with actual living situations. All this was conducted in an atmosphere of freedom and underpinned by the principle of freedom so that learning proceeded in relaxed situations and essential for success. Some pictures from the school. He went on, academic skills found their real worth, their true worth, and we worked together and learned to live together, young and old, male and female, schooled and unschooled, skilled and unskilled. It was like a village, or rather an extended family or clan. Only there always seemed to be an especially high input of positive, happy, creative energy, the hallmark, in my opinion, of youngsters who are trusted particularly when, for lack of money, and the usual hardware of schools, improvisation is the name of the game. John was an exceptional man, and I want to show you two short TV clips, one a film made by Trevor Philpott for the BBC in 1968, and one the reflections of a former pupil, Bob Cudahy, in 1993, to give you a flavour of the school's ethos and breadth of understanding of education.
2: The idea behind the school is to allow people to find themselves. And that goes for the grown-ups as well as the children in the place. How do you do this? What are the main dif- differences between this and a uh, conventional state school or boarding school? Well, I don't know if the ordinary school sets out with this same, you know. But uh, the general means of allowing this to happen here is a provision of freedom, of time, space you don't set out with such a hidebound curriculum and you don't set out with a tight day of lessons does this Tent- mean the children can do more or less as they like well no i think they they've given they're given a chance to do the things they like doing you're free to begin learning algebra here or german or french but if you decide to learn french it isn't good enough, I pointed out then, to come to the class only when it comes up your back, because you have to meet the requirements of a new situation, the class, the time the teacher has, the time the others have, the time you have, the method the teacher thinks good, your abilities, all these new laws come in and so you must keep to the laws. What ultimately was provided here was love and affection, respect, regard, freedom, in a humanity sense, which is doing what you like as long as you hurt nobody else. It's far, far more complicated than you might think. It's not licensed, it's not doing what you like. Um, it was a wonderful, wonderful place to spend three years in. And it's not rose-tinted spectacles. It's not looking back with nostalgia. I love this place very, very much. And it affected me profoundly.
1: So clearly, education is not like this in most of 21st century Britain although there are many examples of doing things differently the 17 United World Colleges um, which operate across four continents of the world and there's one in Wales Atlantic College they bring young people aged 16 to 19 to live and learn together under the banner of education as a force to unite people nations and cultures for peace and a sustainable future the woodcraft folk an educational and empowerment organisation run cooperatively through groups of children and adults meeting regularly and camping together periodically has the shared values of peace, cooperation, and equality. The Red Balloon Learner Centre uh, for Bullied Children operates what works from the premise that attention to individual well being and self esteem is a highly important foundation for learning and states we provide an academic and therapeutic programme. To enable our students to get back on track and reconnect with society. And on the left at the bottom, Emily Charkin and um, family run Wilderness Woods in Sussex as a kind of demonstration project of, of alternative education, bringing children and adults into democratic relation to work with wood and the outdoor life. And Michael Fielding's work to recognise the important contribution of Alex Bloom to state education in England reminds us that in Bloom's Secondary Modern School in Stepney in London in the 1950s, concepts of personalised learning, negotiated curriculum, student voice, they all paved the way for more recent exercises in democratic education. And Bloom's approach had much in common with the practices at Cochraneity House, with, as Fielding says, a custom dialogue between teachers and students, and accumulative cumulative acceptance of a shared responsibility for the well-being and progress of a school community. So following Dewey, education is deliberate and hopeful. This is early 20th century John Dewey. It's informed, respectful, and wise, a process of inviting truth and possibility. It's grounded in a desire that all may flourish and share in life. Last month, the IOE hosted a public debate entitled What If We Really Wanted Evidence-Informed Practice in the Classroom? and invited Gert Biester to contribute. Biester is a professor of education at Brunel University and a leading philosopher interested in democracy and education. He claims that education is a a part of how we are as a society is an important vehicle for learning values and about freedom and responsibility. He said, we want our students to be free human beings who take responsibility for their freedom to live together well and democratically. So over a course of 100 years, Dewey, Kilhwanati, Biesta's thinking, we have a red thread about education in its holistic sense. But how relevant is this today? Education has become synonymous in Britain with the institution of school attainment of tests and exam passes, performance in league tables. Behaviour is no longer a neutral descriptive term but has become reference to undesirable, problematic or simply bad behaviour. The wellbeing dimension of school is in demand more than ever. My colleagues' work on the Millennium Cohort Study data shows that one quarter of girls and one tenth of boys are depressed at age 14. The same data shows that the protective factors are where young people like school, where they're engaged with school, and they have a social life outside school, and the family has adequate material resources. Social integration clearly matters. Well-being is now linked to something schools have to do with awareness training for staff, have dedicated staff for it, and have better access to specialist services. This doesn't appear to match the scale of the problem possibly schools and over-testing might be the problem. In fact, children's academic performance in England are tested more than any other European country. Education has become an economic investment, and PISA invites international comparisons that reduce what education is to a narrow range of accomplishments. In my local authority, schools are warning of a bonfire of uh, arts, music, and creative curricula. They're seen as dispensable subjects because they're not measured by PISA, possibly. Creative industries are a major contributor that contribute to our national economy. 84 billion pounds in 2016 from the creative industries. And at the same time, the demands of 21st century employers are far more highly developed. for Far more highly developed soft skills and values such as communication, collaboration, a global mindset, navigation of networks and systems and thinking creatively. This is what employers want, but is our definition of education supplying it? Possibly it's time for a reimagination of school-based education. So at Thomas Coram Research Unit, over some years, and being in an institute of education, We've troubled away at the various perspectives on education in relation to early childhood services and in relation to education for looked-after children. In both cases, a divide between care on the one hand and education on the other in terms of administrative responsibilities, professionalisation, concepts that guide actual practice, they've been, that divide has been particularly unhelpful. And we can see these two senses of education in play. Education in a narrow sense, which foregrounding academic achievement, prescribed curricula, testing, performance, and league tables, and a broad sense of education, which refers to valuing both learning and the contexts in which children learn, valuing the diverse personhood of each individual and the relational dimensions of learning. There is a holistic conception of the child as multidimensional. And by holistic, we're referring to an approach to work with people in which learning, care, health, general well-being and overall development are viewed as inseparable it's their whole identity so in our the book that I wrote with um, Sonia Jackson I'm very pleased is here and Graham Connolly from Strathclyde we we discussed education for looked after children that was the theme of the book And we said education in a broad sense is about enabling children to grow up the citizens of a country equipped to take advantage of opportunities and realise ambitions, which may be both individual and social. By encouraging young people to adopt certain socially defined values and skills, education has a role in social cohesion, economic prosperity and an upholding democracy. I'm not trying to remove all assessed learning from notions of education. Having externally validated learning is an important part of its recognition, but it's a restating of classical principles of education, or educare, meaning to draw out potential, recognition of the relational dimensions of that drawing out in a democratic social world. So what do I mean by social pedagogy? Social pedagogy is a discipline for the professional practice originating in 19th century Germany. It's found in many countries of the world that have influenced by continental European thinking. It refers to practice that spans care and education and can be organized on an individual or collective basis. It's concerned with all-round development and upbringing for life in contemporary societies. It's very close to, or is, education in its broadest sense. Another way of looking at it is as bringing edu- an educational lens to social problems so in the UK social pedagogy uh, is emerging rather than established it's often evaluated for its attention to professional client child relationships and it's often found in areas of what we call direct practice social work residential care foster care family support it's a way of thinking about group settings such as youth work work with care leavers and an early childhood education perspective. In Denmark, for example, the pedagogue is the major occupation working with young children in in kindergartens and out of school services. And there's a clear social justice dimension to social pedagogy. It was developed to support the integration of disadvantaged young people into societies through both developing their skills and ways of managing and addressing social inequality in society at large. There's also a living and community dimension It's often referred to as sharing the life space. And within the life space, just the everyday life, you can value what is the seemingly mundane. Um, Robin here has a project about washing up, and washing up can be an educative uh, prospect, can be an educative encounter if it's uh, valued. So promoting democratic values within shared spaces implies relatively flat hierarchies both within staff groups and between children or clients and adults. The expressive arts, outdoor activities, both have an important place in the social pedagogy. They facilitate the doing and being together, around which relationships of authenticity and meaning can flourish. Social pedagogies lived with the tension of being, on the one hand, an educational integrationist project, and on the other, what's said to be a thorn in the flesh of officialdom where social pedagogues seek to transform societies on behalf of the freedom and justice of their usually disadvantaged clients. And the mission of social pedagogy is not to keep things as they are, but to point out and address injustice and support peoples to equip themselves to address injustices. In this sense, it's a political project. In the bottom right-hand corner there, you can see the cover of the journal uh, International Journal of Social Pedagogy, established by my colleagues Pat Petrie and Gabriel Eichsteller in 2009. The photo was selected from nominations from the growing social pedagogy community who were asked to submit their expressions of uh, what social pedagogy meant to them. And it captures the close relationship between adult and child, shared learning, the joy of discovering something together, often referred to as a common third activity. So the relationship between education and social pedagogy can be close or distant depending on whether education is defined in a broad or narrow sense. The scope for social pedagogy in the UK has mostly been applied to the domains of practice associated with children's social care, but in other countries it's much wider than that. So what research findings support education in its broadest sense? This care work in Europe was a project that uh, we did in the early 2000s. A six nation project examining the quality of employment in care work across different settings. It was a mixed method study. We looked at services across the life course, day services for older people, home-based services, residential services. Um, We looked at early childhood practice, elder people's services and services for people with disabilities. And we had uh, part, part, contributing partners were Denmark, Sweden, Hungary, Spain, the Netherlands and the UK. What we found was that wherever you went, there were large similarities in uh, what people actually did to redress care work. The way that they formed relationships with people, the way that they were being attentive to people, responding to need, making finely tuned decisions about what should happen next. They made... But these connections between different forms of care work were rarely made in training or policy, so they tended to be silos according to the type of client there were. And the exception to this was Denmark, where there's an all-through profession of pedagogue who works with people of all ages, and I'll come to that pedagogue in a moment. So, the pedagogue um, yeah, it was for training for working with people aged 0 to 100 and it was pitched at bachelor degree level.
2: Come on,
1: this, is a, this is a kindergarten in, in Denmark where we uh, we filmed we made films in each of the three countries and then we showed them to groups of practitioners and then we got them to comment on what they how they related what they could see on the film to um, the practice that they were used to in their own settings and i hope you can read that but that this is a group of four five-year-olds out on a explore from their kindergarten and um
3: Catching fish. I police
2: And the is
1: So that's the that's the adult saying that. I don't think we should go out further. NEEEJ! Yes,
2: Markus, yes. er er, er der, der. Er det der, der, der?
1: <hælder> And that's the adult saying, attending to a splinter. Den tror jeg ikke lige er blevet. Tror ikke, det var er, der var der. Tror bare, det Det der, det er
2: Stikker det vi den her
3: nu no. med for de her, det er det er her. her. den her og der tue bare efter kan jeg aldrig, på
2: hvad får fanger? jeg fanger snegl. en en sneil du
1: en sneil der
2: en stærk sneil Lad mig prøve. er prøve. prøver kærligst du kan have det igen eller noget hvad siger du det, er
1: godt, det, er godt, Nej, det bliver næste gang så Okay, so that's the kind of data that we were working with, and it gives you a flavour of how different kindergartens are. That's just a regular kindergarten in a town in Denmark. But they they really have got a different flavour to them, to the nurseries that you or I might have sent our children to. So what is the Danish pedagogue? They value play, learning, and everyday life. And my colleague, Jutta Jensen, who did the analysis in Denmark, said, togetherness... And unnecessary activities in day-to-day life such as eating, sleeping, going to the bathroom, going for a walk, saying hello and goodbye to parents. These are routines that are repeated every day. It's a mix of informal and formal child and child adult relations. Such everyday life actions are a core value in Danish early childhood settings. Much time and resource is given over to them. They're important for the child becoming resourceful, independent and capable of living in society. So it's a foundation for life, this education, that is offered. Developing skills for collaborative and democratic civic engagement between children and between children and adults. It's a multidimensional education in which physical, cognitive and social education and care are all integrated. And the holistic recognition of children is coupled with fairly flat staff, staff hierarchies in institutions as the manner in which routine tasks are carried out is valued as part of the pedagogical role. It's the ability to bring joy and lightness to the atmosphere of the setting, to help children experience a wide range of emotions, perhaps especially when working outdoors. And taking physical risks, as seen such as lighting campfires or uh, helping children in and out of sandboxes, is seen as, as learning opportunities and not dangers. So the the difference, I guess, for the the Danish Early Childhood Pedagogue is that entry is via a bachelor degree program uh, of 41 months. And it combines theory, practice, placements, and practical and creative work. And as I said, it's for work for people 0 to 100. There are pedagogue assistants as well who are untrained or have a two-year vocational education. But in contrast, in Britain, there's a medley of qualifications for early childhood education and care practice, and that despite considerable policy attention in the last 20 years, it's still divided between teacher education for school-based work on the one hand, and for children two and age two and three up, and care-oriented occupations for working with children in non-school settings and for younger age groups. So when we looked at care work comparisons, we could see that in different cultural contexts. Care and education has been defined differently. One good example of that is how you define competence. What does it look like? How do we know what competence is? And in the last mm, 10, 20 years, I suppose, we've introduced the idea of minimum standards, and competence has become a constrained concept. It's about working to prescription and evaluating practice in terms of being good enough. A tick box approach to measuring attainment of goals promotes measurement of things that are easy to see and risks neglecting a more nuanced approach. But quality of work in care work and with people overall relies on the exercise of situated judgment and that's strongly associated with high quality employment. So you, you need to balance out the two. So we concluded in care work in Europe that the quality of employment was significantly linked to the quality of the work and the value ascribed to it. Where it was defined as care work, it tended to attract low-skilled workforce and little education was required on entry and it offered low pay and low societal recognition. Where it was defined as social pedagogy or education, it attracted higher value. So the second study that I'm going to talk about is... um, this one that was concerned with residential child care in Denmark, England and Germany. This was a, a, a large study with 144 staff interviewed across 56 centres in the three countries. 302 young people were interviewed. We looked at all the centres' records. And we found that the characteristics of the workforce were highly related to outcomes for young people. And it's relevant that in Germany and Denmark, half of the children in care lived in residential institutions, while in England it was less than 15 percent. So those two countries had more experience with um, this group of young people and living in institutions. So we wanted to find out what it was they were doing differently. There were big concerns in Britain as well about the quality of care and its effectiveness at the time. So having found that the characteristics of the workforce were important, what were they? What were those characteristics? In the other two countries, um, the staff were much like, more likely to have high-level qualifications. So nearly all the Danish staff had um, a high-level qualification. Germany was about half. England is about fifth. Teamwork was very important um, among all of the, um, the factors associated with good outcomes. So the idea that that staff would refer to each other and their team would work in teams was um, reported a lot in Denmark and Germany. So, and they regarded positively things like working with children's problems and working with their leaders as positive aspects, much more so than in England. Approaches to key working responsibilities differed. Uh, In England, there was a focus on procedures and short-term behavior management while under the social pedagogic framework, there was a relational and longer term development orientation. Residential workers in the English sites were much more likely to find their approach to providing emotional support as a discursive, offering strategies, persuading, followed by an empathic approach, listening, naming feelings, offering a hug, spending time together, while in the other two countries, those sequences were reversed and they're more likely to offer empathy than a discursive approach. So this is the one bit of bar graph I'm yeah. going to show you, um, which results from um, some questions that we asked, that we called scenario questions, what would you do if questions, and one example was what would you do if you were faced with a, pra- a practitioner was faced with a child aged 12 living in residential care who wanted to see her father, but it's not in his access arrangements to see her, and then the next stage of the question was. Um, that the child has found not to have returned from a visit to her father. So we asked all of the staff, what would you do in that circumstance? And we had about six of these scenarios. And then we totted up their responses. And I think what's important to point out here are the country differences. So in the the Danish case in particular, It Depends was a very um, important um, difference from the other two countries. So, uh, the, it depends refers to wanting to weigh up alternatives, seeing things in the round, what happens if this happens or this, this happens. So, it implies using theory and it implies using uh, some deliberation about what you're going to do next. Um, on the, they all, more or less, equally said they would take action. That isn't a problem. But in the, the second uh, set of graphs, the second column on the procedural one, was a reference to following procedures as a first response and there you can see that the the English response was quite high, about the same as the Danish one. So it's not that the Danish ones are flaky and just doing what they want, it's that they are following procedures but they're also thinking it through quite seriously. So and then the other thing I would point out is the the collaboration on the Danish response um, towards the end there. Far more people talked about doing it in collaboration, which fits in with the finding around it, the importance of teamwork in the, in the Danish approach. So what did all these differences? These are the same people, the same, doing the same, working with the same group of people, but doing it differently in different countries. And the difference for, with outcomes was, um, was quite startling. So placements were more likely to be stable and contact with the birth family more likely in Denmark and Germany than England. And fewer children under 16 were not in school in Denmark and Germany compared to England. And even compared with national trends, the pregnancy rate for under-19s was much higher in England compared to Denmark and Germany. And then the one that really got the Department of uh, Education going at the time was the rate of criminal offences. This was the the number of offences that were recorded in in the establishment records for the year preceding our our visit. And there you can see that the the English young people were being reported for offences much more than in in Germany or Denmark. So the differences were explained by staff characteristics and the working environment. The in-house training, the practice responses I showed you, the intention to stay in post, And, critically, more staff were associated with worse outcomes. So that is probably because the the places with more staff were in England, where there was a lower level of education and training than in the other two countries, probably. And that work on social pedagogy, um, if we fast forward a number of years, um, has uh, provided compelling evidence that the profession of social pedagogue, the working environment, the social pedagogy profession- policy framework were com- contributing to a coherent and positive quality of life for young people in residential care, much more so in Denmark and Germany than England. And since that time, there has been a, a program of works partly supported by the government uh, before 2010, um, and partly supported by um, charities and foundations to uh, implement social pedagogy training and development to a wide number of organisations in the UK and some organisations have developed training packages and about 3,000 practitioners in the UK have now had some training Um, and uh, yeah there's more coming on stream at the same over all the time. On your chairs is a leaflet about a professional association the social pedagogy professional association that we have uh, developed here. And um, anyone who's interested can take one and and find out more and look at our website. So the third area of um, research that supports social pedagogy is um, Yippee. Becky mentioned it. A great acronym. One of my rare moments of wit with with acronyms. What does it mean? Young People with Public from public care background and their pathways through education in Europe. It was an EU-funded study um, and in five countries, Denmark, Sweden, Hungary and Spain and the UK. And we wanted to know what was happening to young people who were equipped to go forward to, to uh, post-16 education. At that time, compulsory education, education finished at age 16. What was happening to those young people in five countries? were they able to go forward into um, tertiary education in the same way as children who hadn't been in care? Um, Or were there particular barriers about their in-care experiences? And um, we amassed a lot of interviews, 930 interviews across these countries with a range of young people, people who they had nominated as being important to them, policymakers, um, education providers and so on. We found that serious delays and disadvantages um, for in all countries compared to those not in care. Um, we, had, we found that they were far less likely to go on to higher education. Um, they had often fallen seriously behind um, in their schooling and in some countries that was a, a deliberate possibility to, to retake a year, in other countries it wasn't. Fewer than half were achieving the expected level at that stage, at the same time as their birth cohort. And at the upper secondary phase, um, fewer young people from care backgrounds compared to the others held sufficient qualifications to continue, and particularly the case in England. So, many of the young people that we interviewed had family backgrounds that were characterised by serious maltreatment. They had... uh, abusive family backgrounds. They'd often suffered bereavement. Um, there were few family members in, in their lives who had been to higher education themselves, almost none. So they had no model to, to learn from in the way that other, other young people might. There was little history of employment in the families either. So it was a, there were huge burdens, to over, adversities to overcome for this group in each country we did in-depth interviews and in 32 in England these were young people that we considered had promise in that they had some qualifications at age 16 so they should have been able to go forward and of our 32 25 were in education post 16 they were often also doing voluntary work and or employment they had uh, tended to have low-quality, poor educational guidance at that stage. So they'd often had to change courses. They'd often change placements, which had meant changing courses. There were some structural barriers. Um, Employment was imperative in some countries, which meant they couldn't actually go into education. Um, That wasn't so much the case in Britain, but what was the case here was that um, those young people who'd arrived as unaccompanied asylum seekers found that once they turned 18 and their status changed and they no longer had a right to, to work, then their practice placements were often um, not, no longer possible. So they couldn't finish their courses. There was little systematic integrated support for post-compulsory education for this group, but there were some exceptions. One of them was a teacher embedded in a leaving care team uh, who was able to shepherd young people through the process of applying for higher education um, or employment or any other kind of education through really detailed um, hand-holding. That meant going with them to interviews, drafting statements, putting up exhibitions for them and so on. In Denmark, there was a possibility of boarding school for all 15-year-olds. And that meant that um, so the care leavers who had done that, they were able to find have more relaxed uh, engagement with pedagogues and teachers who had been to universities and they were able to expand their horizons. And foster carers were also, where they'd been continuous and committed, they were also really, really important for um, championing young people's higher education. So what's clear from this is that the, the role of education services around in the whole round is really critically important for uh, care leavers. It's not just the care system which is important, but everything around it. So when we think about responding to children, we're talking about combining care and education. We're talking about... A broad educational response that's required for children in care and care leavers. And that means not just one part, responding not just one part of their needs and being, but valuing the everyday context in which they live, seeing the learning and development opportunities in the most mundane of circumstances. And supporting well being, which as I mentioned earlier is now everywhere, it means walking alongside young people walking, making meaningful relationships with them, providing accurate help and guidance, ways that promote their self-esteem. And in fact, I've called this model an educator who is an expert in everyday life because the everyday life context in which young people live is one in which the foster carers, the residential workers know very well and they need to be able to be valued for that expertise. It's also important that we go uh, to recognise young people's contributions. They are making their lives, and they need to have active recognition of their, of their own and their social lives. Their self-esteem, their civic engagement, the societal structures, their legal, the legal systems need to be able to respond to children in a broadly educational frame. So now I turn to my third theme which is belonging. And if social pedagogy is about relationships, what kind of relationships are we talking about? And there's been a, a re, what we call a relational turn in the last five, six, 10 years, including in House of Commons reports who what, in 2009 said it's the quality <laughs> of relationships that will determine whether a child in care feels cared about on a day-to-day basis. But it's mostly focused on attachment theory. And uh, it's about the only paradigm that there is at the moment to work with. And attachment theory poses the idea that, and it perfectly, holds perfectly true, it's just not the sole explanation, poses that you need an adult and a child to be in close connection and a child has to grow up with a very responsive, attuned adult in, in order to um, develop as a, as a whole being, as it were. So I uh, did a study, another cross-national study, with um, Denmark, Germany and Belgium, looking at how they conceptualised relationships when they're working in a social pedagogic framework. And all of the interviews that I did there suggested that there were four, at least four different possible um, purposes of relationships, around building skills, around being together in a kind of philosophical encounter, as an emancipatory ideal where you are giving young people the opportunity to act for themselves and as a as helping workers to understand problems a sort of instrumental idea of relationships and in my paper with um, Mark Smith who's here and Daniela Reimer from from Germany we argued that warm affectionate relationships are undoubtedly needed but that attachment theories occupied too much theoretical space in social work and related debates about out-of-home care. We turn instead to longer-term and holistic recognition of children and young people. And we talk about, uh, following Axel Honneth's work, we talk about love, solidarity and self-esteem. And those three dimensions recognise the interpersonal and intimate, the social and legal relationships of our lives, and argue that human growth and development requires attention to all of them. This shares common ground with a social pedagogue's perspectives on relationships as being embedded in the social as well as the interpersonal context. So in order to work on how we might achieve recognition, we might turn to the idea of belonging. And belonging is often associated with attachment when it's discussed in, in relation to children in care it signifies a stable, committed foster placement and an absence of divided loyalties. But if we look to other literatures, such as philosophy and migration, we can find other definitions of belonging. And one that I particularly like is that belonging is about being at ease with one's self and one's surroundings. It's the quintessential mode of being human in which all aspects of the self as humans are perfectly integrated. Belonging involves a process of creating a sense of identification with one's social, relational, and material surroundings. It's a mode of being in which we are as we ought to be, fully ourselves. So to belong is not a static concept, but evolves over time and is perceived differently in different contexts. And because the world is changing and the people in it change, we're constantly undergoing our changing belongings. It's something we have to keep working at, as it were. So, in relation to uh, working with children in care and uh, how what belonging might look like in that context, we might say it has there are three main dimensions. Um, there's a social and relational dimension, the immediate here and now, which is rather close to where the established discourse is at the moment. There's a cultural and historical dimension to belonging, a familiarity from what one brings with what one brings from the past and ways of being. So that might be objects that you bring with you into a new space. It might be recognition of your uh, particular way that you do your hair, or a picture that you would like. And then the third dimension is an embodied and geographical dimension, touch, physical touch, tolerance of physical touch, surroundings, and place. And this photograph on the right is from a study that I did with Alison Clark, who's also here somewhere. Um, Looking at how uh, the home is conceptualised in a residential care home, and this gives a good indication of this last dimension of belonging. And the member of staff says the sideboard is having plants in the house, house is what you would have at your own home. We always have fruits and vegetables available for the young people. So those are some of the dimensions of belonging that we've been working with. Sorry, where's my, my piece of paper on this? When we looked at foster care, foster care placements, we found that um, one small study that I've done with Hanan Hawari was that they were very uh, foster parents were very good at working on the social and relational, but they were much less good at working with the cultural historical, embodied and geographical. And it seemed to us that there was if belonging really is about being at ease with oneself. It's relevant for all out-of-home placements, not just those that are long-term. And it's relevant also from placements from day one, not just when they're, um, when they're established. So we need to reflect on the concrete everyday life consequences of a new life space. I have said most of that. <laughs> Belonging is created and nurtured. I don't have my piece of paper. It creates, by having dialogue with each other, you have creating um, shared reference points. Two minutes. And it requires consideration from the outset. I'm going to move on. If done well, I think if we can really work on this idea of belonging in foster care and residential care, then it has the potential to halt disruption, and there are far too many disrupted placements in foster care. So, What am I saying? What's my red thread on responding to children in care? We're currently living through an era of much insecurity and fracturing of the civic, political and social body. Inequalities are rising and support services that ameliorate the impact of inequalities are diminishing. Young people in out-of-home placements are in danger of being at the centre of a perfect storm of impoverished resources, poor recognition of staff and underdeveloped knowledge bases for professional practice so that young people come to official attention as criminal or mentally ill, and the potential to make a constructive and long-lasting difference to their everyday lives is rarely visible. But what I've talked about today is seeing work with children in care as an everyday life encounter. It has practical, relational, curiosity-driven meaning, as well as potential outcomes. We focus on the here and now. I'm arguing that care is seen as education and upbringing, a developmental as well as a nurturing and caretaking task and the educators who adopt a critical and reflective position they have a humanistic stance as well as relational empathy and finally the educators forge nurture and together enjoy creative and practical opportunities for young people as well as taking them to school and helping with homework I'll leave it there
0: that was a really brilliant explanation and advocacy for social pedagogy and the important social capital that it garners in comparison to this notion of care work that you explained about. I've learned about the importance of taking uh, this combination of care and education for excluded uh, young people in care really seriously. And of course, again, it was really inspiring, wasn't it, to hear about the impact that Claire's uh, deep and wide research findings and advocacy have had on the whole um, profession and sector. So that's really inspiring, Claire, thank you. I was also really struck by this notion of your demand for equality of access to possibilities. That will stay with me. Uh, Thank you, Claire. And we now um, are really lucky to have Mark Smith, who I will introduce now as our respondent today. Mark is professor of social work at the University of Dundee. Before moving into academia, Mark was a practitioner and manager in residential care settings for almost 20 years. He's since held posts at the universities of Strathclyde, Edinburgh, and Dundee. His research interests span care and upbringing, social pedagogy, social work ethics, and theorizing social work. And he's written widely on residential childcare, social work, and moral panics. His edited book with Viv Cree, Social Work in a Changing Scotland, is published this month. So there's a little plug there, coming out on the 23rd of February. Now we're really pleased that mark's been able to travel down from dundee to join us this evening thank you mark please can i invite you to make your response
3: thank you very much becky i'll take permission from claire to (laughs) drop the hat ditch the hat Um, in scotland i don't think you ever wear a hat when you're graduating you get tapped with a cap by the principal or whoever the, is, is doing the graduation ceremony, but you don't actually wear one, so I've never worn one and I don't intend to start this evening. Um, th- thank you very much, Becky. Thank you, Claire, um, for inviting me to do this. It's, it's a real honour. Um, congratulations, Claire, for, as Becky says, a magisterial sort of um, run through of your approach to how we best respond to children in the 21st century. Um, It's uh, the red thread that you talk about is very much apparent, very evident, and it ends in this quality of belonging. And the route to that sort of place of belonging is through social pedagogical means. Congratulations too on being the first professor of social pedagogy in the UK. Um, I'm actually jealous because I don't think being a professor of social work actually conveys um, what I have done as a practitioner or what I would like to do as an academic. Um, I googled how you might respond to an inaugural lecture. And it doesn't tell you anything. So I'm sort of left to my own devices. And what I want to do is just pick up on a few um, points from from Claire's lecture. And some came to me as she was speaking as well. Deviate a wee bit. I want to start with um, Claire's time at Colquhounity, and to sort of weave that in with some of my own experience. My own experience of schooling was very different. I was at a um, state comprehensive with fourteen hundred kids, and it was okay, but I didn't leave with any sort of sense of belonging or any sort of you know enduring fondness of the place that got me to university. But it wasn't the kind of experience that Claire describes. But my first job on leaving university was actually in what was called a Listee school, an approved school in England. Um, It was run by the De La Salle brothers, and the brothers can get a bad name in terms of the the way that they are claimed to have um, operated the schools. But my own experience was that they were um, humane and gentle guys. And they adopted a sort of pastoral management style where hierarchies were not apparent. I was out for a pint um, last Friday night with a good friend of mine who um, I met actually because he was a careers officer at the first school I worked in. And he described, he speaks of it very fondly and as being formative as it is for me. And he describes going into the school for the first time and coming across this guy pottering about. And he asked him where the headmaster was, and it transpired that he was the headmaster. So, th- th- that's so it says something about St. Joseph's, I think. It was a really sort of special place for me and a formative sort of experience. Um, I remember some of the publicity or some of the written material at the time, and I can't remember exactly what it said, but one of the th- phrases was something about adult, children need adults who care for them something and then gently lead them. Now, this notion of gently leading kids, drawing them up, I think resonates with an idea of what a good, good upbringing is. Um, I moved on to another school, and ironically, it used to be run by Max Patterson, who was a friend of John Aitkenhead's. It was a sort of troika of um, big figures in childcare in Scotland, jo- um, John Aitkenhead, Max Patterson, John Wilson. Um, but uh, i had reverted to a more traditional, listy school by the stage I, I went. And actually, my experiences there were far less... Um, sort of, you know, They had far less of that sense of belonging that I experienced at St. Joseph's. Um, partly because it had become professionalised. It was the early 90s, just as managerial ideas were sort of coming to the fore. Um, and it lacked something. It lacked a sort of sense of soul, I think. Um, Okay, I think from Claire's experience of residential care, from my experience working in residential care, what becomes very apparent is that there is an artificial distinction between education and care, and Claire mentioned the idea of life space there that you learn through doing everyday things like washing the dishes. For a long time, I sort of realised that the best work I did with kids was when I was playing football alongside them. But it could be hard to actually say that in any professional context when you're expected to do things a wee bit fancier than that, which I never, ever did and still don't really understand particularly um, what what a sort of scientific approach to care is. Um, (coughs) But as um, Claire was talking or showing the wee clip about... Um, the Danish kids out fishing, I, I was reminded of an experience that we had. For a number of years, we used to take kids um, cycling around the highlands. And um, we were at Inverary on the west coast, at Inverary Pier, and there was people fishing off Inverary Pier. And Mike Matuzak, one of the teachers with us, and the kids called him Tush. he said, right, a fiver for the first guy who can catch a kipper. And Bernie, a wee kid, came up to him and said, Tush, you can't catch kippers. They're, pickle- they're um, smoked herrings. And Mike said, of course you can catch a kipper. Um, so they're fishing away. And Mike had sent us out to try and buy a kipper so we could put it onto his line. And we couldn't get a kipper, but we could get a, a um, one of these candy kippers which we did and we got one of the other kids to go under the pier and hook that you know, candy kipper onto his line. So I mean it's just one of these wonderful experiences and the boy's name was Bernie and I came across him a um, number of years later, probably 15-20 years later. And I remember him saying to me, he stopped me in the street and said, those were the best days of my life. I wish I could turn the clock back. Now, he didn't last much longer than that, actually. He died a number of years, a number of months after that. But he had, you know, the outcomes weren't there. But he had some good experiences and some good memories for while he was in residential care. Um, (coughs) As I say, and as Claire points out, we tend to reinforce a separation between care and education in the UK in a way that social pedagogy doesn't. <coughs> and that, that's what Claire and our colleagues at the Thomas Coram unit were working on when I first came across them. And I was sort of in awe when I was first invited down to, you know, um, to events with Claire, with Pat Petrie, Peter Moss. but became so sort of quite embedded and um, privileged to be embedded in that group through the Center for Understanding Social Pedagogy, which brought together um, those interested in social pedagogy conceptually from across Europe. Um, as Claire herself said, she pursued her interest in social pedagogy in a number of empirical projects as well, and both Claire and Becky have mentioned the impact of that and those ideas with government. And, of course, one of the things that, you know, Claire has shown is that countries that operate to said social pedagogical principles actually achieve better outcomes for kids. One reason of, for this, as Claire herself has, has um, identified, is to do with the quality of the workforce. They are experts in the everyday we tend not to valorize the everyday experience when we think about workforce and workforce development, but it's in those small moments in the everyday where you make a difference in the lives of kids. Um, so what might experts in the everyday look like Um, I think Claire touched on some of it when she spoke about the response to particular situations. It's about getting that right balance between a thinking response, a reflective response, and an empathic response. And I think that social pedagogues do that in a way where we, and I include myself in this, might have reacted to kids' situations and kids' behaviours. The other thing I was thinking about in terms of experts in the everyday is what they're not. They're not psychologists or therapists. They are people who play football with kids, who go fishing with kids, or yeah, wash the dishes with them, or get them up in the mornings, and um, eat with them. So it's not a scientific knowledge. What kind of knowledge is is required to be an expert in the everyday? As I say, it's not scientific knowledge. It's situated, or it's grounded in us. The, the everyday experiences of working alongside kids in that life space, that milieu. Um, and it affords the ability to reach what Claire described in her lecture as situated judgments, um, contextualised judgments. So it's not drawing on principle or rule books or codes of conduct or whatever else. It's about working out what is the right thing to do in a particular set of circumstances. Um, and yet, what we find is in the Anglophone world, we're rushing headlong down a scientific route which is called attachment or increasingly called trauma. If you're looking at how we are invited to look after children or to work with children, it's always to be attachment informed or increasingly trauma informed. As Claire mentioned, we've already had a sort of poppet attachment in terms of seeing there's got to be more to it than this our next project is to do something similar in respect of trauma. And one of the problems with a trauma discourse in relation to children is that it goes against this notion of the rich child and um, the child who is rich in potential. And that it sort of positions the child as a victim of their circumstances. And that's not to say that children don't... Things happen to children that shouldn't happen to them. But actually what we do know is that there's a resilience and a richness that can actually transcend many of the bad things that happen to kids if we can actually offer them the right kind of upbringing experience subsequently. And social pedagogy, (coughs) I think, allows us to do that. The other thing, though, it allows us is a political lens through which to identify why kids do not get the kind of experiences that they ought to get in a way that social work has actually given up on. We look at things in a far too individualistic manner, whereas I think social pedagogy gives you that possibility to work in a relational um, way with people in the here and now, but also gives you that political lens through which to, to understand the situations that they're in. It's a lens, I think, that Claire's work has been instrumental in bringing to a UK context. So I think, just thank Claire for that.
0: Well, it falls to me um, to thank Mark for his thought-provoking and generous response there. Thank you very much. And to Claire for her terrific speech. To all of you, of course, for coming and listening and participating. Um, this is a traditional inaugural lecture, so of course there are no questions and answers in this format. But you will, of course, have time and the possibility of talking to Claire and talking amongst yourselves about the themes that have been raised at tonight's event over a glass, whether alcoholic or otherwise. And I hope you'll join us to do that in, reception, in, the, in the reception. But thank you for coming. Thank you to our speakers. And I hope you'll join with me in thanking them.